Welcome to church. So glad that you're here and love the fact that you're greeting one another so warmly. Great to see you. I am wearing a bracelet that, uh, that one of the kids that comes to our small group on Friday nights made for me. So I don't normally wear jewelry except for this one thing, but I'm sporting a new one that's kind of cool. Bears colors, I thought. We don't have much to cheer for, but we've got a bracelet with bears colors. What a privilege to be together. On Christmas Day, I had the delight of uh, preaching a sermon alongside of my son-in-law and having my other son-in-law read the scriptures. And, uh, and in the third point, my son-in-law brought up a, uh, a 1 Samuel 8 and how many times we use the, they use the word take. You asked for a king. You demanded a king. You wanted to be like the other nations in 1 Samuel 8. And six times the words take is used. And these kings that you wanted to rule over you will take your sons and take your daughters, use them in war, use them to serve you. They'll take your fields, your chance of making an income. They'll take your workers. They'll take your grain and produce. They'll force you to give to support their needs and what they desire. It's a taking arrangement that you've demanded by having a king. Today, we're going to see in Isaiah 9, 1 through 10, that there is a king who would come that was promised at this point who was going to give, who was going to serve, who was going to restore. Jesus is the faithful king. At the end of that uh, passage in 1 Samuel 8, it says, In that day you will cry out because of your king. How thankful we are that we serve a king that is not at all like that. We are in Isaiah 11, 1 through 10 today, and we are going to find out about this king who would come. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my, mount, my holy mountain. 
For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus the King. A king who gives and doesn't take. A king who serves, who loves, and who will restore in such a way that's beyond our understanding where the weak will not be put down anymore, where the marginalized will not be taken advantage of. Father, we look forward to your kingdom coming. May your kingdom come even now on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is the good king, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the, as, the, as this chapter begins, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. There's going to be another child. Another one is going to grow from this broken tree who is going to be different. In chapter 11, we are wrapping up a section of Isaiah between Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. We saw this promise of a king who would come, a child. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This promise, 700 years before Christ came, written into an Israelite story that was happening right then. King Ahaz was on the throne and he was failing, he was afraid. Israel and others were attacking, and he turned to Assyria. Assyria, the bullies, the ones who were evil and doing things that were evil to others. The king, who was supposed to turn to God, turned to Assyria and put his trust in Assyria. And God writes a story that will bring both Assyria and Israel under judgment. This king who had turned his way. They speak of another king that is to come. And for a number of years, the Israelites wondered if Hezekiah was that king. The son of King Ahaz, um, that king, that son was Hezekiah. And when he came and began to reign, he was much more godly. But the promises that were made in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 could not be fulfilled by Hezekiah or by any earthly king. The promises were of him being a, bringing the very character and quality of God to the kingdom and to his people. And that promise that was made in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 is now shown what it's going to be like in Isaiah 11. When this king comes and when he reigns, what will it be like? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Why not the stump of David? Why does he change it now and say the stump of Jesse? Well, we're guessing somewhat, but possibly because the Davidic line has been so corrupted and found so wanting that it's as if to say that we are going to start again. Now, the promise was made to David, and when Jesus comes, it is spoken of him as the son of David. But so messed up was the Davidic line at this point he writes to this Israelite, his Israelite readers and says it's going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's as if the forest has been cleared 
and it looks like all of it is death and all of it is ruined and people have ruined what was good and all of a sudden there's a green shoot coming out and that's Jesus. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This story isn't over. God won't let this story end in ruin. Why? God promised to Abraham that he would be faithful. God promised to Isaac. He promised to Jacob. He promised to Moses. He promised to David. And all of those promises, God is faithful to. God can be trusted. He is the king that doesn't ruin, he restores. And out of the ruin that people have made because they turn to other gods and they turn to other ways of living and they say, no, I'm not going to trust God with this. I'm going to trust anything else but God. I would even turn to Assyria, even though they're bullies and tyrants. Maybe if I can get them on my side, it'll turn good for me. And after the ruin, he says that there will be one who will come up from the stump of Jesse and one who will bear fruit. In verse 2 it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is what this king looks like. It's a remarkable statement. The Spirit of the Lord is used in the Old Testament to Describe something that is done not in human power, but with God's power. It's something miraculous. It was talked about the builders of the tabernacle. Belazel, 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 he was given the Spirit of God to cause him to be able to build with supernatural power. It was spoken of King David when he fought Goliath. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he was able to do beyond what he could have done otherwise. This king will re- rule with the Spirit of the Lord. He will have a spirit of wisdom and understanding. What does that mean? Is that he has wisdom and understanding. He not only sees what needs to be done, he doesn't have knowledge about what's happening, he knows what's right and what's good and what's pure and accomplishes that. The spirit of counsel and might. Wonderful counselor. It's not enough for him just to know the right thing to do, but he has the power to accomplish it. And now I want you to pause a minute and think about this king, not on a throne, but on a cross. This king had the wisdom and the knowledge to understand what we needed and the power to bring it about. What do people need? They need new hearts. They need a fresh start. They need a do-over on celestial levels. We need forgiveness and grace. And God, being a just God, that was only provided for because Jesus Christ paid for our sins. This king came to suffer and die. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This king was going to serve like no other king and lead like no other king that we've ever seen. The human kings, and I would 
argue that we could all sit here and judge those who have led us, but if we were in that position, we would take also. That's been proven. Every new regime that comes in is selfish. And we think, we might think, well, I would do way better. Really? A lot of humans have led, and they lead like humans. There's only one who leads with purity, with wisdom, with the Spirit of the Lord, with the knowledge and fear of the Lord being their hallmark. Now I want to pause before we go from good king to trustworthy king and acknowledge something about the character of God. Something that's remarkable to me. Do you know that Jacob blessed his son Judah, telling him that the scepter would not leave his hand? In other words, there was going to become a king from Judah's line before kings were chosen out of rebellion. In other words, Jesus' plan of salvation was in place millennia before the people said, we want a king. God had already written a story, a redemptive story, into the rebellion of the Israelites. It's a shocking God moment to think that he was already being gracious before he was rejected. And then long before Jesus came, in the middle of their failure, while King Ahaz is saying, I'm not going to trust you, I'm not going to trust you, I'm not going to trust you, God is saying, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to redeem you. These promises that are written up on this wall that we're going to be studying from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are shocking to me because they are amidst incredible human failure. God gives his maybe most glorious promises. It's just not a promise just to bless. This is a promise that cost his son's life. Jesus is a good king. Jesus is a trustworthy king, verses 3 through 5. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. What does that mean? That means that as a judge, he is going to look at the heart. You won't be able to win the day because you're a good orator or because you have a lot of money. In fact, God finds that abhorrent. That's not justice. Justice is not that the mightiest win again and again and again. That the most talented win again and again and again. God's justice looks at people's hearts and sees people and protects and loves and fights for them. He is the best parent you could imagine. He is the best God you could imagine. When it says he will not judge by what his eyes see, he's saying you can't impress him by outward appearances. When he says he won't decide disputes by what his ears hear, he's not listening to your flattery. He's looking at your heart. And he's looking at the heart of the person you're trying to beat. And he's deciding honestly, truly, this is the Lord we serve. Now, there's a caveat to that. I mean, that feels great when we're being taken advantage of, but that means you don't take advantage, Christians. God sees. 
God has called you to love and to care and to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. This king will fight for those who can't fight for themselves. That's the promise. Unlike any other king. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and he shall break and and with his breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. God is going to do a reversal. He talks about this reversal where people that we thought were throwaway people, people that we thought we didn't, that didn't matter, children that we thought didn't matter, people from other nations that we thought didn't matter, God is fighting for them. God sees them. God loves them. Bullies will not rule when Jesus rules. People who protect people will rule because Christ protects people. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. His whole kingdom will be built on righteousness and faithfulness. Jesus is a trustworthy king. That means that you can go and really get justice. You can go and be heard by the king. You can go and be corrected by the king. That means when I come to Christ and I'm complaining or bringing my, my argument against someone else or thinking somehow I've been wronged and I come before my king, invariably he sends me back to love and be kind and be his ambassador in that situation. Because he is bringing redemption, spreading it. His kingdom causes redemption to spread. When you think of praying the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about your own heart. That this is the work I'll be part of, advancing the kingdom of Christ. Jesus is a good king. Jesus is the trustworthy king. Jesus is also the safe king. Safe is a word that we use today uh, in psychology. We use it talking to people. It's about a feeling, right? It's about a place where you know that you can go and be yourself and not be judged and not be beat up and not be beat down. Safe places are... Well, great picture of it is safe families. Finding a child that's at risk and and being a place where they have safety, right? Where they can experience peace. Where they can go to bed and think, I'm not going to be hurt tonight or in the morning. What is safe? When I say Jesus is the safe king, I would argue that there is no safer place to be. He not only loves you and sees you and knows you, but he has provided for your forgiveness. So even when we come to him broken, even when we come to him having failed, even when we come to him and we're the problem, which so often I am, Jesus is the only place you can go that's safe. 
Verse 6 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. This is different than the way we live today. There are wolves and leopards and lions in the world. And they look who they can devour. And they take advantage. And they use the leverage they have to win. And winning means diminishing someone else. And Jesus' reign will be marked by no more of that. Where people fight for each other. Where safety is found. This is not just talking about animals. It's talking about a way of life where Jesus reigns. And ultimately, it's going to be revealed, as Revelations 20 talks about, in the millennium of Christ, when he reigns and all of the evil will be put away. I can't wait. I can't even imagine it. I cannot imagine a place and a time where there is no more suffering, no more beatdown, no more people taking advantage and stomping on other people. This picture is not just about animals, it's about people. Can you imagine a child being able to lead things that are five, six, seven times its size with evil intent? No longer will there be evil intent. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. I don't think that God is going to change the digestive systems of lions. Maybe he will. That's not the point. The point is that in humanity, lions will be reprogrammed to be lambs. Their character will now be gentle and meek because Jesus' character is gentle and meek. For all of those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ and still have the remnants of dominance and taking, that'll be taken away. It will be no more. We will be givers in the reign of Christ. And that reign is available to us to a degree today. Thy kingdom come. Jesus talked about his kingdom being present tense, which means his followers can experience this in their own lives now. This isn't just a promise for the future, but oh, what a promise it is for the future. In verse 8, it says, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. That might be my favorite. Can you picture that one? Playing over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why does God take four verses, three and a half verses, to make this point? Because humans have botched this so badly that we can't even hardly imagine this. That we would be a redeemed people who protect, who love, who are meek, who fight for those who can't fight for themselves. This is our king, our faithful king. 
He's safe. And in his holy mountain, he will not allow it. He will not allow dominance and beating down other people. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We will know God, not just like know about him and details, but like your best friend. You will know him, and all of us will know him. It's the promise that Dr. Norbeck's going to preach about soon from Jeremiah, that he will place the knowledge of God in our very hearts. He'll give us his Holy Spirit. And as the waters cover the sea, how much more water can you fit into the sea? So will the knowledge of God be among his people. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. I only did one verse here, but what this leads to is a call back. So for, from chapter 7 through chapter 11, there has been a dispersing where people have been judged. The Israelites are being judged. The Assyrians are being judged. And there is destruction because of their choices. The choices have led them to a dark place where you would think the message of God would be, well, you did it now. I had nothing to do with that. Wash my hands clean of you people. He writes a promise in chapter 7, a promise in chapter 9, that a child will be born who will be Emmanuel, who will be Prince of Peace and Mighty God. And that promise is written in the middle of their failure. And at the end here of this section in chapter 11, as we get to verse 10, he is inviting people back, telling them, this king is good. This king is trustworthy. This king is safe. Come home. Come back and experience life the way God meant us to have it. And that invitation is still today. That we have a king that you can come home to who is safe, who has provided a way for forgiveness. I have had more than one friend say to me, God wouldn't want me. I've done too much. I love the fact that these promises are given in the height of people's failure. Why? Because he's saying loud and clear, you haven't sinned too much for me to be faithful. You haven't sinned too much for me to provide redemption. And it's unto you a child has been born. It's unto you a son has been given and the government shall be on his shoulders. I was a little nervous about preaching from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. I'm not nervous about it anymore. I'm just excited. The promise that we have, long before Jesus came, and then the fulfillment in Christ and the promises that are yet unfulfilled, I want you to know the heart of God. The heart of God is to give, not to take. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I confess we don't have much to offer you or your kingdom when it comes to goodness, faithfulness, and righteousness. But by the power of your Spirit, you have changed the story and called us to your work. And I just want to say thank you. I want to thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises, that you are a God who gives, and that you're a God we can trust. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen.